This is A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 with me, Andrew Muller. It's the fourth of a five-part series of programmes from the Starmus Science and Art Festival in Zurich, produced in collaboration with Kaspersky. Today we meet Nicole Stott, former NASA astronaut and painter of the first watercolour in orbit. There was kind of this strange attraction that seemed to take place. So even before I got the brush all the way to the water, it was like the water wanted to move to the brush. And then the same thing when I took the water down to the paint. It's like the paint attracted the water. And we'll hear from Kaspersky's Marco Price about securing cyberspace in space. When talking about space, this is just a new area where we're talking about the same systems but in a completely different setup to be brought outside of Earth. That's all to come on A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller, at the Starmus Festival in Zurich for Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. I'm joined now by Nicole Stott, former NASA astronaut, one-time resident of the International Space Station and crew member aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery, and as if all that wasn't enough, founder of the Space for Art Foundation and responsible for the first watercolour painted in space, which is a a fantastic landmark to be able to claim. I, I did want to start with that. The logistics of painting aboard the International Space Station, is it any more or less complicated a process than trying to do it on Earth? I mean, I think watercolor painting is kind of difficult on its own, wherever you are, but uh, certainly in space it had its challenges, but it was kind of like I thought about every day in space. You know, there, there were challenges that were just different to how things work down here. So, for instance, you have to keep track of everything. You know, if you let go of something, it's going to float. The ventilation's going to take it somewhere. You're never going to find it for, you know, a month. And so you have to you Velcro on everything, sticking stuff to walls or your pants to keep track of it. And the same is true with water. You know, you, so you squirt a ball of water out, and it's going to float away, or you're going to dip your brush into it. And that's what I would do. I would secure myself, squirt out a little ball of water, dip my brush into it, mush it around in the paint, and then you know, use that colored ball of water on the paper. But the thing that was, you know, was really kind of weird to me was I expected to just stick my brush into the ball of water and then use it (laughs) to paint. But there was kind of this strange attraction that seemed to take place. So even before I got the brush all the way to the water, it was like the water wanted to move to the brush. Like there was some super top secret attraction, magnetism thing going on. And then the same thing when I took the water down to the paint. It's like the paint attracted the water. And then back to the brush. And and then the same was true on the paper when the colored water. If I actually touched the brush to the paper, all the whole blob of colored water would go into it. So I ended up painting by dragging that colored ball of water along the paper, (laughs) which is very different. Is there some sort of scientific rationale for that? Is is, is there (laughs) some sort of extremely microgravity field being exerted by the canvas or the brush. I have no idea how any of this works. I have absolutely no idea. You know, I tried to rationalize it with maybe, you know, some of these strange surface tension things that go on. Just the fact that you have a ball of water, you know, is because (laughs) of surface tension and the lack of gravity or this falling thing. And, or that there may have been some kind of static attraction, static electricity causing it to move one way or the other. I don't know. I was, I just know I looked at it like, wow, that's cool, you know, and then painted, <laughs> painted with it and wished in hindsight that I would have videotaped the whole thing because I think it would have been 
it would have been a nice memory for me, first of all, to have it. But I think it would have been a really interesting way to just describe the whole kind of process of living in microgravity, where you do have to take care of yourself. Everything's floating, including you. And, you know, spatially things are different. And, you know, you're not painting in front of the window because at five miles a second, what you're painting is gone before you can get the brush to the paper. And, you know, those kinds of things that I think would have brought it to life a little bit more than just the one picture I have of painting in space. It, it, it does bring us quite nicely, though, to one of the, the themes of Starmus, which is the, the intersection of space exploration and of artistic representations to it. Do you think, as somebody who's done both of those things, both explored space and responded artistically to it, that those, those artistic representations are important to space exploration? I think they're absolutely important. In fact, I think this whole idea of the intersection between art and science or art and space is important to just every aspect of life. And uh, when I was getting ready to retire from NASA to move on from the astronaut office to whatever next adventure it was going to be, one of the things I felt completely like obligated to do was to share the experience, share the spaceflight experience. And every time I started thinking about how can I uniquely do that? How can I, you know, in some meaningful way do that? And I kept coming back to that painting that I did in space. And it made me realize that, you know, art, I think, is just a universal communicator. And there are a lot of people that don't even know we have a space station. So if I could use my art to communicate with other audiences and let them know, hey, you've got these people, six human beings living off the planet for the last 20 years, circling Earth every 90 minutes, and doing work that's all about improving life down here on Earth, whether they like my art or not, it didn't matter. It was a matter of being able to communicate the backstory to them. And the same thing for relating people to what the experience felt like, this connection that you make to the planet by just realizing that we live on a planet (laughs) in space already together, you know? And I don't think there's any better way than artistically trying to communicate that and and connecting with emotions, which art and music and and any form of art does to human beings. I was just wondering if for astronauts, or for at least you in particular, it's a way of reaching across a barrier which it, it strikes me, especially this week, does kind of separate you from the rest of humanity because I can't think it's possible for me to do anything comparable to going into space. And it struck me a few times this week, even talking to you know people who've walked on the moon, that they can sit there and tell me what it's like. And there's still part of me just going, nope, this still just seems completely yeah, impossible. <laughs> well, I'm glad that's not just me. This still just seems impossible and incredible. Does it feel like that for astronauts, that when you're trying to explain this, in just sort of normal, here's me telling you what it's like kind of ways, you're still just thinking, no, I can't really express what this feels like. You know, it's really difficult to explain, to express the actual, you know, physical feeling of it, the kind of that emotional, it gets into you, you didn't just see it, hear it, float around it, you felt it, it's like part of you. But I think, actually, I hope what we all try to do is like me with the art, others through their speaking to and you know, working at a university or at some space company or what, whatever they decide to do, that they're trying to figure out that way to make a connection with people that somehow gives them their own, I call it Earthrise moment, you know, that gives them their own kind of personal sense of what that must have felt like or how it could have felt. 
And I really believe, though, that you don't have to go to space to feel these things, to understand this idea that we live on a planet, we're all Earthlings, the whole interconnectivity of it. You know, thin blue line, that's all, the only border that matters, that one that wraps our planet. And I think, I think Chris Hadfield used his experience going out into a redwood forest and being in awe of mm -hmm. these trees, you know, and then really sitting back and thinking about the awesomeness of these trees and what it means. I think the same thing for me happens when I'm scuba diving or I'm in a place that I've never been before. And now it even happens when I'm sitting in my own backyard and just looking at the grass or at the bees or at the, my dogs or whatever, because it's become something that I know is so much greater and more powerful than me myself. And that I'm part of something that's really, really significant. And I think you don't have to go to space to feel that. I wish everyone could go to space and feel what it's like to float, just liberated that way and to see Earth from space. But I, the result of it, I don't think has to happen through going to space. I'm reminded of, I think, was it Al Bean, your fellow astronaut turned painter, who was the one who came back from the moon and spent much of his time afterwards just sitting in shopping malls, eating ice cream, watching people go back and forth and think, thinking, this is great. Yeah, <laughs> there, is, there is a, you know, awe and wonder are two of the words that come to mind when you think about the experience of being in space, of seeing Earth from space. But we are surrounded by, by awesomeness. There's the wonder, I mean, the fact that we can just sit here and talk to each other, that we're human beings alive on, on a planet is a pretty interesting thing to consider. And my whole thing is going to be about how do we bring these experiences back to Earth in a way that's really, really simply expressed, either through artwork or the science of it, and get everyone to realize that, you know, we live on a planet, we're all Earthlings, and the only border that matters is that thin blue line of atmosphere. Because that's what I think it all really comes down to. Well, one of the ways you try to do that now, of course, is, is with your Space for Art Foundation, which uses space exploration as a, a, a lever, I guess, to excite that, that awe in, in children about science and the world in which they live. Is that harder to do when there's not a really obvious headline project to hang that on, like an Apollo program or a shuttle program? I don't think it requires that. It would be wonderful to have that. But kids are so cool. I mean, kids, when they just think about space exploration in general, they're relating it to something they might know. You know, hopefully they all know about, you know, the Apollo program and what we did on the moon. I try to make sure they know about the space station and the you know, the work that's going on there and how cool it is. But I think in the end for us, when we work with these children and the place that we started originally with these kids was in pediatric cancer centers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these children are going through what you hope is the, the worst thing they ever have that they and their families ever have to deal with in their entire lives. And so you come into these places and I've just been amazed, like, in awe, again, of how something like art, participating in an art project that has to do with some idea about space exploration, brings these kids strength. I mean, they sit up straighter. They start talking about their own futures. They're pointing at the sky, you know, talking about what space exploration could mean to them. And then even they get hugely philosophical about it, too. At age seven, this one little girl, I remember telling me, like sitting with me saying, oh, Nicole... Yeah, Miss Nicole, what you do in space, it's got to be a lot like what I'm going through here in treatment at the hospital. And I'm like maintaining the smile, thinking how in the world is she comparing 
what she's going through to what I dreamed about doing. Mm -hmm. And then she just proceeds, she's painting, and she proceeds to say, yeah, you know, you don't see your mommy and daddy and your friends the same way, and you have to eat all different kinds of food, and your body's changing, and they're doing all kinds of tests on you, and I think you get exposed to radiation like we do here. And um, I'm, <laughs> I get goosebumps thinking about every single time because it's so true. And it's just, again, it's just that very simple, basic kind of relationship to what you deal with in different situations. And it's so powerful, I think. Space exploration is, is inspirational, even without knowing what might have, what have happened in space. But I think it's powerful because it gets these kids thinking outside of the experience they're having at the moment that might not be so great and has them imagining their own future, not as individuals, but wanting to have a healthy future for themselves, but for everyone around them, too. And then as part of our projects, they're working with kids that are in, you know, 40 different countries with them, too. So they see this project come together in something much bigger than themselves as well. Well, just as a final quick thought, then, you, you spent 100 days and change in space. Is, is there anything about it you miss? I miss everything about it. It's like when somebody asks me the question, what did you like the most about it? It's like everything, you know? And uh, I think that if, if I could have my family there with me, that would be the ideal situation. They would love it and they would do great. But I miss, um, I miss the way my body felt there. Um, to move in three dimensions, just so effortlessly. I mean, to really fly. Like, I had dreams about running and jumping and trying to do that before. In, and I don't have those dreams anymore because I think my body knows what that felt like. Um, but that view out the window, to have that and to be separated like you never were before or I probably ever will be again and to feel more connected to this place below you, that's something I wish everybody could experience. Nicole Stott, yeah. thank you for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller, at the Starmus Festival in Zurich for Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. I'm joined now by Marco Preuss, security researcher with the global research and analysis team at Kaspersky. Marco, to talk about cybersecurity and space, which I guess is the, the obvious overlap of what we're all doing here, are there cybersecurity hazards specific to space? Does it become a, a different thing once you leave the Earth? To be honest, not really. Basically, in IT security, we're, of course, having a look at all different kind of areas. And for quite some time already, we have this growing connectivity in general. So everything gets connected, a lot of embedded devices. So it's not just only the computer or the smartphone you have, but everything around you, even if you don't know it, gets like smart, connected, has additional abilities which it didn't have before, like the coffee machine can be controlled through the internet, basic example. And when talking about space, this is just a new area, basically, where we're talking about basically the same systems, but in a completely different setup to be brought outside of Earth. So at the moment, all our infrastructure from a digital perspective is on Earth, but with more and more technologies going into space, it's a growing field, so we need to have more closer look at what is happening there, same as we have for industrial systems, for example, because there we have like critical systems, and they need to be protected even more, probably, to really ensure the operation on all aspects. 
is there a question then that perhaps because it's happening in space that the potential consequences of a cybersecurity breach are magnified? I, I guess the, the shorter version of that question is, what is a nightmare scenario? Okay, a very, very basic example. When you're at your computer at home and you, for example, get infected with ransomware, mm. you always have the chance to just stop by the next shop, get a new computer, set it up, and you're back up in a few minutes. This is trickier in the orbit. This is, of course, tricky in the orbit because just even getting in the parcel with a new computer is more tricky. So you really have this thinking about a longer operation, sustainability of the systems you have, similar to industrial systems. You don't switch them off every year and get a new system. They're produced to be running for a long time without any kind of interruption. So you have on one side the security itself, or what you already know from your computer systems, but also the operational security, which basically goes along together because all of these aspects need to be ensured in a proper way. So are the systems that you would put in place to prevent that kind of attack, whether it's by ransomware or malware or whatever other kind of where, is it basically the same as the kind of thing that you would use to protect a, any system here on Earth, or does the technology need to be adapted for space? The technology needs to be adapted to the systems, and that's exactly the thing that we're constantly researching how to keep up with security on the evolution of the systems in order to protect them better. So we're talking also a lot about more security by design, for example, which applies to certain levels, to ensure security not by just adding security at some last stage in the process, but way earlier, way already in the production cycle, hardware side, software side, to be in the design of the systems already and not just an add-on because security is an essential system, it's an essential aspect of the systems we have. So in the time you've been working on this, though, and again, looking specifically at threats to space-borne technology, how have you seen the, the nature of the cybersecurity threat change or evolve? In general, it's not specific about space. The threat landscape changes, it evolves new methods are playing well so the criminals adapt to that but also on the professional level so we've seen over the past years more and more gains into espionage even destructive operations which are way more complex compared to the let's say regular cyber criminal area so you have to keep in mind all of these more complex and long-term operations which are happening already and just add it to this growing connectivity into certain areas, also into space. Marco Preuss, thank you very much for joining us. 
That's it for this episode of A Giant Leap, produced by Monocle24 in collaboration with Kaspersky at the Starmus Festival in Zurich. We're back tomorrow with more from Starmus. And remember to go back and listen to the other episodes in this series if you haven't already. We've already spoken to Apollo 16's Charlie Duke, renowned astrophysicist Brian May, and Nobel Prize winner Donna Strickland, among others. To find out more about Kaspersky's mission of building a safer world, head to kaspersky.com. A Giant Leap is produced and edited by Bill Lutie and presented by me, Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening, and until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.